You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 182. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcast. Uh, certainly hope we're there by now. And hey, if you can, leave us a review. Yep. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And uh, see what tweets we got for you. We got lots of tweets over at Coding Blocks. And uh, if you go to codingblocks.net, you can find all our other dillies at the top of the page. With that, I'm Joe Zach. I'm Michael Outlaw. And I am Alan Underwood. This episode is sponsored by Retool. Stop wrestling with UI libraries, hacking together data sources, and figuring out access controls. And instead, start shipping apps that move your business forward. Lost you guys. Okay. All right. So I guess uh, this episode, we are going to continue on with the site reliability engineering book that we started with from Google. And this one is going to be all about embracing risk. But before we do that, we want to talk about our news and some of the reviews that we got. So Outlaw, reader of names. (laughs) Is that, is that my new job title? That's right. It's Outlaw, like Lord reader of, the, of names. That's like the Lord of the Rings style. Right? Reader I, wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that, but uh, yeah, I, I would be awful at that. That would be like the worst <laughs> the worst job title ever. So fortunately, this one works out to where it's not so bad. So, uh, you know, thank you to uh, Richard Hopkins and JR for uh, their new reviews. Both very good. Thank you yes. very much. Um, all right. So before I get into this next one I have in there, so I do have to mention like our Slack channel. I love our, 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 it's not Slack channel, our Slack group, right. With lots of channels. Well, there's one channel in there that, um, there's a few of us that are a part of the whiskey channel. And, and I have to mention this one that my wife got me. Um, I think micro G you will like this, uh, Devin, you'll probably like it. Sean, um, Garrison brothers. My wife bought me one called honeydew. And we all had a conversation in the past where people like four roses. And I was like, you got to take a sugar cube, melt it up and put it in there. And it's amazing. That's what this tastes like. It is so good. So um, I need to post a picture up in there. But again, my wife got it for me. So I thought I would bring it up. It's a good reason to go up to Slack anyways and get involved in just an amazing group of people up there. So if you haven't already joined the group, go to codingblocks.net slash Slack. And that's it for that. Now, hey, before the next thing, while we're talking about Slack, go ahead and mention um, we have an episode discussion channel and had an SRE who worked at Google during uh, some of the period that we talked about uh, was in the channel uh, sharing a lot of really great just notes and tips and corrections and just really great perspective on uh, everything. And we had just really great discussion in general after the last episode. So um, you should hop in there and uh, see what that emissary has to say. Yep, that's awesome. All right, now for a bit of sad news that we got. So Jim Hummelson has been just amazing and and shared with us over the past probably three years, I want to say that – yeah, maybe more. Three years only gets you to the beginning of COVID. (laughs) Good God. It's crazy. Um, (laughs) So – so he shared with us a long time ago that ACM, if you joined ACM, then you got the entire O'Reilly – um, library of books and audiobooks and all kinds of stuff that came along with it for 99 bucks a year. Uh, sadly, both Outlaw and I received an email this past week saying that they are basically O'Reilly didn't want to renew their partnership with the ACM. And so that feature is going away, sadly. So 
if you signed up for the ACM like we did so that you could partake of all of it, you're going to lose a big chunk of it at the end of June of this year. So um, very sad. Don't know what to do about it. That's the thing that like I get that they have, you know, they couldn't get like whatever contracts set up between them and O'Reilly. I just hated that like midway through my membership year, I'm like losing the benefits. Like, it's okay. Why not to it, the end? I, like I might, I would have felt a little bit different about it. It was like if at least like the current year you got all that benefit, and then they were saying like, "Hey, next year you mm-hmm. won't get that if you if you decide to renew, right?" But midway through, like after you've already paid whatever you paid, you know, for for the subscription, that they're like, "Hey, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it does away. It stinks." Um, I mean, there's still a lot of good content out there. It's hard to say whether or not I'll keep mine. I, I, I don't is know. It, like the, the, right. Yeah. Maybe not a big <laughs> one. But, <laughs> I don't know. It, it does make me sad, but at any rate, just be aware of that. So if you have listened to a bunch of the past episodes, where we're like, Hey, go get an ACM membership. And this was the reason why you were going to do it. You, you know, you might want to look elsewhere. So moving on from there, um, I guess let's go ahead and dive into this. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about embracing risk as it relates to site reliability. So, man, I actually love the opening of this thing, right? Like they were talking about, you know, we, we all use Google. Everybody probably on the planet at this point, if, if you're in a country that has Google, probably uses Google, right? And you probably assume that they aim for 100% uptime reliability on everything, right? No, <laughs> not at all. Because... This this is what's really interesting. They're like, well, increasing reliability has always got to be better for the service, right? Like, it has to be. No. It's super, super expensive, super cost prohibitive to add one more nine of reliability, right? Like, I think, I think Outlaw explained it in the past. Like, when we're talking about nines of reliability, you usually have 99% uptime. And then every nine after the decimal is another nine of reliability. So if you say you have one nine of reliability, I think it's 99.9, right? If if you're two nines and you're 99.99, et cetera, right? Well, every one of those decimal points that you add there increase the cost. And they say that it not only increases the cost, sometimes it can go up more than a hundred times the cost just for getting one more nine of reliability. When not only that is that, um, the hoops that you might have to go through to make that additional bit of reliability might actually impede the user experience. Yep. So, you know, you have that. And then even if you, even if you don't on an ups on an upside, let's say, let's assume you don't like, are the users going to notice it? Right. Yeah. I think, I, I don't know if you have this in the notes somewhere, but they actually said that um, the internet service in general has a between 0.1 and 1% failure rate. So just alone, you know, you may get blamed for it, you may not, but that's the reliability of just the average internet user. Yeah. So w- one of the things that they were basically saying is when you are focused solely on increasing reliability, that means that you're not able to iterate on the features that you want to add to the product, right? Like customers might want, like, you know, Gmail, if you were on that way back in the day, there's way more features in Gmail now than there were when it first started. And part of that is because they spend time developing features and not just trying to keep the thing, you know, up 100% of the time. Um, Oh yeah. You know what? Um, we didn't say at the start, we, we are skipping chapter two. We're not talking about chapter two. 
<laughs> We've moved on to chapter three. Way to talk about what we weren't going to talk about. But we're not going to talk about it? Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah apparently not. I don't think we're talking about it. It's just uh, chapter two is all, a lot about Google services and kind of set some stages, stage for some stuff. And I talked about how they do things internally, which was interesting and good, and you should read it, but uh, just not really podcast. It, it's It was a super interesting chapter. It's just not like necessarily a lot of takeaway lessons that you can learn from it because it's more about like what they do, how they do the, the, the biggest takeaway that I had from it was from a terminology perspective was as it might relate to like the word server, for example, like how many times have you walked into like, Hey, well, I mean, about to say server room, right. Or, uh, you know, you see some some computers and on racks, and people are like, "Oh, that server over there does blah 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 blah." And in Google terminology, that they would never call it that; they call those machines. And uh, a server is the software that might serve up something like Gmail or a web page or a database query or whatever. Yep. So server was you know like they they yeah it was software. All right, so now we're done not talking about chapter two. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> totally not going to talk about it. Not going to talk about it. Um, so, so Jay Z hit on the fact that you know the the reliability of the systems that are actually using these other systems are usually lower, and so their whole point with that is because those systems aren't one hundred percent reliable, the chances of you even noticing something on Google services not being reliable are really low. Because you might chalk it up to your cell phone service not being great or or your internet connection being slow or whatever. So it, it's not even that important because nothing's perfect is what it boils down to. Um, and so what they say is really what SREs are really trying to do is they're trying to balance the risk of unavailability with innovations and features, right? You don't want to stop innovating. You don't want to stop releasing features, but you also need to make sure the stuff runs. And so it's a, it's a fine line, right? And that's really what they're trying to do in this when they talk about embracing risk. Yeah. It's just accepting that it's, it's a, it's a reality. It's a fact of life. It's going to happen. And you need to accept that and learn how to manage it, which is a great segue for the next section called managing risk. Yep. And, and they make, they make the most obvious statement here, right? When you have an unstable system, it diminishes user confidence, right? Like that's as a software developer, you know that, right? Like if, if you have to keep going back to your customer and being like, yeah, I know this isn't working. We'll, we'll get this fixed. And, you know, next day, something else doesn't work and we'll get it fixed. Then eventually they're going to be like, yo, do we just need to use another piece of software? Because like, this is, this is getting ridiculous. And you don't want to be in that, in that mode. It doesn't even have to be like your uh, thing that you're offering to your customers. It could be even internal things. How how many times have you had like uh, something as simple as like a set of unit tests? You're like, Oh, those always, those always uh, return a, an error. So we just ignore those. And then over time you like, you know, like, like your whole, uh, you'll, you'll see people just ignore all the unit tests and they won't even run it. And it's like, Oh, well, cause I always got some errors out of it. And it's like, yeah, that's why it's important to like, you know, fix these things as they go. Like otherwise people are going to, you know, lose confidence in it and not rely on it. Yep. It, it didn't take a lot to lose confidence. You know, something that could probably fail, you know, a small percentage of time and it feel like it happens all the time, especially yep. if it fails when you need it. Yeah, that's a, that's a super important point, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
So one of the things that they point out here is the cost does not scale with improvements to reliability. So basically what they mean is as you're increasing the reliability of your system, the costs go way up. Like it's not like, Hey, I made this a little bit more reliable. It just costs a little bit more money. No, I made it a little bit more reliable and it cost me 10 times the amount of money. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll get into it later, but I mean, they actually get into the math of like, yeah, I mean, we, this is all stuff we kind of hinted at too in the last episode, you know, we're like, uh, quantifying that and measuring it, you know, so yeah, like, they Hey, is it even worth your time to deal with that? Right. And so they have what they call their two dimensions of cost in here. There's the cost of redundancy and compute resources, right? So the, the computer, the CPU that you're using, and then the opportunity cost, which we already talked about a little bit, which is you're basically trading features that you could be developing um, for reliability, right? So you, you only got so many developers, you only got so much money, you got to choose where you're going to put that. Even if you try to say like, oh, we'll just hire somebody else to do to do that thing. That's still money that you're paying somebody else to do that instead of paying somebody to develop new features. Yep. And yeah, I was really happy with how they uh, phrased things and just thought about stuff. In the the this tetrics that really aligned the SREs with the business interest and the business costs. And I think that's a really good thing for especially such an infrastructure and kind of DevOps oriented role. Is that it's kind of odd to pair those together those that you don't usually think about in business you know goals and expenses and profit aligned with infrastructure but here we are yeah, yeah. i think this chapter specifically got into like knowing uh you know what the value was going to be right was it was yeah. it this chapter yeah okay so they actually hit on this right like it, what he was talking about is the sre's goals sort of align with the business's goals so if the business goal is for 99.9% uptime right or reliability then that's what the sre's targeting and what was really interesting about this is typically they're targeting that plus just a little bit more not like another 9 of reliability but they got to hit 99.91 we'll say right they try to treat that business goal as their minimum and their maximum because that's how they can maximize their effectiveness and what they're going to do, right? If they spend too much time trying to go past that 99.9%, then they're wasting time, right? They just need to meet the business goals. Now, their word for that, you can call it gold plating. That's true. Yeah. Right? If you're going too far. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, all right. So the next thing up we have is, is service risk, measuring service risk. Is there Easy. a chapter on this? I haven't read ahead yet, oh, but boy. I could, I, I kept thinking, I'm like, well, what if you work on internal tools or like this, this whole kind of section is basically about identifying an objective metric for a property uh, of a system to kind of optimize. So, uh, at Google, for example, they talk about how they actually, uh, focus on, um, measuring downtime in terms of, um, which call where is it? We've gotten this, show. but uh, yeah, there we go. Their success rate is the total number of successful requests over the total number of requests because something like um, counting downtime in terms of minutes and hours doesn't really make sense when you're this global service that you know you never really go down totally, right? So that it was, this is a better metric for them. And I just kept thinking like they were they were tying these services to like dollars earned and dollars cost and you know coming up with. Um, a ways to really measure that and in order to come up with it. I just keep thinking like if you work on like internal tools or something like it's really hard to kind of map those to, to dollars sometimes. Or if you have a, a business where, um, you know, if your site goes down, you don't necessarily lose any money because your customers are all like, I don't say the subscription based or something. 
Whereas uh, Amazon.com, if Amazon.com is unavailable or you can't check out or something, it's very easy to say, well, this is how much we made yesterday at this time. So that's how much we lost. So they did talk about that a little bit in this chapter um, because they they went through exactly what you're talking about. When you have a customer facing type thing or something that is revenue tied, then it's real easy to measure what you're doing, right? Like um, X amount of uptime equals X amount of dollars, right? There's that type of thing. But then they said that they do have internal systems that maybe a bunch of different teams rely on, but you can't tie directly to a, a, a target revenue or something, but they do have SLOs for that as well because it does impact so many other ones. So, so there are owners of that and then they have to negotiate what their SLOs will be. Um, within the organization and they have to measure it right because it does impact everybody it's just hard to come up with numbers if we say like well it's all internal customers and so if we go down we just annoy people say well okay let's just take it down all the time if the cost is zero right if the benefit is zero dollars why are you even have this at all and so obviously that's not the number but it's hard to find a number so maybe you could take people's salaries and kind of do some math like how much time does it save you know so i guess that's you know what the right answer is it's just tough i mean i don't recall that uh, to the level of what you're getting at, I don't, I don't think I recall seeing that so far in what I've read, but they do call out that like, that's where, you know, the business owner for whatever that thing is, you know, part of that person's responsibility would be to know what that value is, whether, and they don't, they didn't um, distinguish from an external versus an internal type right. uh, service. Yeah, because I mean, even internal right. service like has some like external value. Sorry to interrupt you, Alan, but like if if let's say let's say for example you were running the help desk for for Google employees, you know, just an internal help desk for Google, right? Where they can like, hey, there's something wrong with my um, machine. I need you know service or whatever. Blah blah blah. You know, uh, that that developer, you know, whoever whoever has that downtime because of that need, right? Like that, that's costing you, you know, the company money if they're not productive. So, you know, just because it's internal, doesn't mean it doesn't uh, have a value. Yeah. It's just harder to calculate. I think let's right. say you're working on a HR system and HR system goes down. And because of that, people can't change their tax withholdings, marital status, um, you know, new employees, hiring stuff, stuff goes down, but the business as a whole keeps going. Customers don't know at all. So, you know, presumably you need less nines on an HR system than you do for like a 24-7 storefront or something. Um, but trying to come up with a dollar amount for that and trying to figure out how many nines you should have, like how long you can go without it becoming a big problem, it's just kind of hard to to come up with a number, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I- internal money always is harder to measure, but there's there's got to be some way to reflect the business value, right? Um, it's almost like tell, it's like... Hey, um, how, hey, how many nines can you give me for the HR system? It's like, well, how much money do you have to spend? How much time do you have for me to spend on this? That's how many nines you get. Right. So, I mean, going to all this, this actually hits on the next point, which is what you have to do when you're trying to measure the service risk is you have to identify an objective metric to use. Um, because only by identifying that metric, can you start to measure and optimize for that thing? Right. So it like, you guys, I know this has always driven me crazy. Like somebody will come to you and be like, Hey, the, the system's broken. And it's like, well, what do you mean? Like, 
what do you mean the system's broken? What's broken? Can you not log in? Can you not click on a list? Can you like, please explain because there's a vast difference between, between not knowing exactly what you're looking for and some vague thing, right? You, you know what you just reminded me of? We've talked about this before, but you remember that website, the website is down. Yeah. I don't remember that one. Really? Come on, Alan. Man, it's been a long time. But that, that's what it day. reminds me of, though. It was like when the guy calls in and the, the website's down and he has yeah. the guy, the sysadmin reboot it. But it turns out like there wasn't anything wrong with the website. It was, you know, his computer was the issue. Uh-huh. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's right. It's working for me. I um, keep typing in the wrong password and I can't <laughs> log in. Right. Yeah. Um, so by having this, this metric, this one metric that you're going to focus on, you can measure the improvements and any degrada- degradations that happen over time, right? That's important because just because you're measuring doesn't mean things are all going to be glorious, right? Um, yeah, that's and, a good point too. You know, the, the HR system, you know, we said it's hard to tie back to a system uh, to a real cost. Well, just start with anything. And then if you find out it's inaccurate or a problem, you know, it's not worth spending days or weeks and, you know, coming up with a, a cost center there. And it's also not worth not having, you know, not doing because you can't get perfect. You can't say like, let's just not worry about the HR system because it's too hard to come up with a number. Just start somewhere and adapt. Yeah. So to that point, it may not be a dollar amount, right? It might just be Hey, um, what is the uptime of the page where somebody can change their surname, right? Like that, that might be the metric that they use to, to report on. And then that way they can find out if they need to do anything to fix things later. So one of the things that is really interesting that they called out here is Google focuses on unplanned downtime. So it's really important to know the difference, right? Like if you've, if you've worked for a software company for long enough, there's going to be planned maintenance windows, right? Where, hey, we need to upgrade the OS on these servers. We plan on having them down between 1 and 2 a.m. on these days, right? That's planned. That's okay. You did it because you knew you are going to do it. What's bad is when the system goes down in the middle of the day because just something went sideways and you don't know what it is. So that's unplanned downtime, right? And Jay-Z already hit on the fact that Google doesn't use time as a thing, because you mentioned it briefly, they're distributed, right? They have servers all around the world. So while um, Google search might be up here in Atlanta, it may be down, down there in Florida where Jay-Z is, right? So um, it's hard to measure uptime when you have sporadic services all over the world, right? So instead of focusing on that, they do what they, what he said earlier, which is the number of requests, You ever read that article? Um, your nines are not my nines. No, no. Uh, Rachel by the Bay. Oh man, she a uh, ha- wonderful blog. Like, it's amazing to me, like how often this blog comes up on Hacker News. Like this uh, is an article from uh, 2019. We just basically talked about just because the cloud service has a green check mark doesn't mean that your business is operating well because you know different companies count things different ways. It doesn't mean that you know they're what they're calling functional. Doesn't mean that. <laughs> You know, it's something's not working for you because it's typically reflected in uh, that number usually reflects like the service as a whole. So just because S3 isn't down doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the rack that your stuff is on isn't down. Right. That's a really good point. Hey, did I, I'm assuming you guys have looked at the notes here. Um, 
if you haven't, do either one of you know what 99.99% uptime is? How much downtime you're allowed to have in a year without looking? Uh, well, I mean, I have it like right in front of my face. So. Yeah, you looked. All right. It was a shocking number to me. I'd never really yeah. thought about it. It's 52.56 minutes a year. So two nines of reliability means you're allowed to be down less than an hour in an entire year. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's really good uptime, man. Yeah, I, I was curious. I went back and looked for that that video that I just, the website is down video. We talked about it in uh, episode one twenty two, designing data oh. intensive applications. Coincidentally, the subtopic was maintainability. Oh, nice. Hey, in fairness, that was about two years ago. How am I supposed to remember that? It was, uh, it was December of 19. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's been a minute. Oh, remember how so, li- good life was back then? December of 19. Uh, we didn't right know anything before. about like the pandemic or anything. We're like, we were all like, we would go out all the time to restaurants. Like, no way we thought about it. Life was grand. And I was heading to London in two yeah, months. You wanted to yeah, travel? Man. You're like, let's, yeah, let's get on a plane. Let's go. What's the big deal? Man. I miss it. You would stand in line, like right up against people, you know, while you're like waiting to get on the touching roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, touching yeah. You're them. bumping into each other at the, in line for the roller coaster and everything. And yeah, right. it's great. It's great. Yeah. yeah. I love having people just breathing on you. It was just such a nice feeling. <laughs> yeah. Anywhere, you know, drugstore or whatever. We didn't you, know how you, good we had it. Well, you know, you've noticed that Joe Zach no longer invites people to kick his shins. He doesn't like people to touch him anymore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah it's done. Oh, I'm going to. Oh, oh, hey. You know, Orlando just got an elastic meetup. <laughs> yeah, I just I have some. I'm owed some kickers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait, wait! You said something about Orlando. What's going on? Uh, Orlando has an elastic meetup now. So, oh, really? Yeah. Are you, you actually meeting? Maybe I'll be there. I don't know. There's nothing scheduled yet. It just started up. <laughs> okay. I'm excited about it. It's fictional. It's a fictional meetup, is what you're saying. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. One right. of the uh, I guess one of the DevRels just moved here. Okay. So it may it may just end up being virtual or you know who knows how it's going to go it's still old school. I joined. All right, well, well let us know. So back All to right. availability. So yes. less than 52 let's just call it 52 and a half minutes if you're going to you know measure it based on time. So like if that's your if that's your four nines of availability is based on time, you can afford to be down roughly 52 and a half minutes before it becomes a problem and you're no longer meeting your objective. For an entire year. Yeah. That's, that's a crazy number to me. So, so 14 minutes a quarter, right? Uh, Another way to look at that. It's again, insane. Well, so Jay Z hit on it. Google does it by request, right? So if they have a service, um, like, like an S3 service or which they don't, Google doesn't, um, uh, like GCS, right? Like if you hit their, their GCS API, they may be aiming for 99.99% reliability on that and here's where things get interesting when you're doing it on a rate level if they have 2.5 million requests a day let's say for for gcs then 250 of those can fail when you look at it like that that's a little bit more palatable right that's that's sort of easier to swallow and for them it makes a lot more sense because again they have this service hosted across the world in multiple data centers and all that kind of stuff. So it's easier for them to, to measure that type of, of reliability versus the uptime thing. That's still not a lot of uh, failures though. It's not, 
it's really not. <laughs> That's only we're only talking about four nines of availability so far. So you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, getting it. I actually three nines. I don't even know that I've seen anybody say that they do three nines on most things. Like, oh no, there's a, there's an Amazon storage that has this beyond that. Isn't there? Or is it like one of the, maybe it's like a, uh, a back blaze or somebody like that, that, or no wasabi. I think it's wasabi. Uh, they have, a um, Oh gosh, what's their uptime. I'm pretty sure that one of, there was like one that's like six nines or something crazy. Uh, da, 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 sound effects are dinging and well, oh, here it is. Durability is what they go after. 11 nines. That's crazy. Durability. Now that's durability, not necessarily reliability. So, you know, you're talking about storage. So you're just saying like, Hey, we, guarantee your stuff's going to be on that disc. But yeah, I mean, depending on what your metric is, it's, it's really insane to think about. I'm actually, I was going to see what three nines of reliability would be. No, not, no, not, not two nine. Yeah. Three nines of reliability be for 2.5 million requests. It looks like that you can have 25 failures. That's insane to me. 25. If you're going for three nines of reliability. So, I mean, again, that's just, that's my God to get to that point, the amount of engineering effort and, and redundancy and failover and everything else you have to put into play for that is hyper expensive. You you know what that fourth nine would be, right? I mean, anybody's following along the two, it's two, right? 2.5. You're just moving the decimal point. Yeah. You're just moving it one more. (laughs) Yeah, man. It's, it's insane. Um, so this is this is what's interesting. So we're talking about this right here in, in in these crazy numbers, but the reality is not all services should be judged the same. Um and they they give a perfect example. So in their thing, I don't want to give away too much of the book because we want people to read it. Um but hey, there's they a big give difference. It away. If you're they, not already <laughs> reading this book, you need to go to sre.google and you can get the book uh for free. S- s- uh, for I think it was like forward slash books, right? Uh, I don't yeah, yeah, I think it was something like that. Uh, SRE dot Google, uh, and then slash you have slash books. Yeah. So although that's not all they have up there, they yeah, have, uh, have Google has other books. This is just their SRE books. Yeah. So one of the things, yeah. Okay, so I guess we could give it away, and we could talk about every sentence in it, but we we're not going to. Oh, speaking of, we are giving away a physical copy of the book if you uh, drop a comment here. Don't yeah, on what is it? Codingblocks.net slash episode one eighty two. That's right. Oh. All right. So what I was saying is, like, there's a big difference between having a sign up form for a new customer, right? Like, you probably want that thing to work. You you don't want to push away new customers. However, like. If we take Gmail, for instance, Gmail all the time behind the scenes is checking for new messages, right? Like if you've ever been sitting in your Gmail inbox, you'll see it pop up a new message at the top. It's because it's, you know, polling for info. If some of those um, back-end service calls fail, that's not quite as big of a deal as that new user that's trying to sign up for the site, right? Or for some sub-service. <laughs> 
Yes. Really? <laughs> Did that throw you off? <laughs> I didn't got mean a, to. He's got a pick stuck on the middle of his forehead. I didn't mean to, a guitar pick. Yeah, I didn't mean to like completely derail the conversation. <laughs> no, no Jay Z. He's got on a St. Patty's Day version. Um. So <laughs> yeah. All right. See, I actually look at you guys while we're talking. This, this, this. <laughs> it's funny, like how quickly that derailed it. I totally didn't intend for it. <laughs> Point so being, go, like yeah. this conversation, the uptime of this conversation was really important, and uh, I totally like blew out our SLO on that. Yeah. You know, so yeah, Jay Z's got an alien pick now. That's amazing. Um, all right, so. The other thing that they say is um, Google, they check this success rate for non-customer facing systems as well. This is this goes back to what Jay-Z was saying earlier about, hey, what about systems that are, that are only internal, right? That don't matter to the customer. Um, Google sets quarterly availability targets and may track these weekly or daily. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We are jerks. Yeah, you guys are. We're just sticking <laughs> sticking stuff to our heads now at this point. This is what happens when it gets super late <laughs> at night and you've already had long days. Right? <laughs> uh, so so at on? any rate, by tracking these things daily and weekly, that means you could address these issues quicker, right? Like you, you don't have to wait a whole quarter to be like, Yeah, things kinda went south this time. We should focus on it next go around, right? But there's there's a implicit uh, requirement there that that requires that you have strong observability. Yeah. There's gotta be some metrics. No, that because, and that's always the problem with it, right? Like, you know, the, the problems you're looking for that you're watching for that they tend to not happen because you're watching for them and you take care of them. Right. And so like you fix that, it's always those problems that you're like, I didn't even know that was a problem. We weren't looking for that. That like, that's the thing that always is the one that bites you. Right. I mean, you know what's funny is when we covered those um, DevOps books that we did back in the day that tie really nicely into this, that's probably the one takeaway that I've truly gotten on board with is having metrics for things. Measurability within your system is so key to actually knowing what the heck's going on that I want to put metrics on everything, which isn't quite possible, but but it really does help you overall when you're developing software. It comes in handy really with a lot of debugging too, just like times you're like, well, let me go see. Maybe I have you know, something or you don't even, you don't even have a question first. You just go look at a dashboard and you're like, huh, that's weird. This number is way higher than it was yesterday. And it just goes on from there. It's great. I mean, it's funny. Um, just an example, like one of the things that I got shot at with this week was, Hey, something failed over here. And because we didn't have metrics around certain things, I had to go digging through logs, right? And I had to start aligning timestamps with when things happen in a system over here and over here. And if we'd had metrics to say, hey, what was the latency between um, when this thing hit this particular service and when it hit this service? And I could have looked at it and said, oh, this thing went backwards in time. That's not even possible. There's a problem in the pipeline here, right? And And it's that kind of stuff that once you start getting it in place, you really miss it when it's not there. So, um, all right. So the next thing, risk tolerance services. Um, 
Somebody else want to take this? I'm tired of yeah. talking. My so, throat uh, hurts. <laughs> the idea, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the idea here is, you know, we talked about that SRE should work directly with the business to define goals that can be engineered. And something that can be difficult because measuring consumer services is clearly definable. So this is kind of like the example we talked about. And uh, the idea of the SRE, SRE working with the business is really cool, as we kind of mentioned. And, you know, I was kind of thinking I'm still like, obsessed with the HR uh, example. So I kind of thought, like, if I go to the HR director and said, hey, it, would it bother you if the system was down one hour a day? And you just take a long lunch or whatever. And, you know, in my head, that sounded like a reasonable thing, you know, like seven-eighths hours, <laughs> seven-eighths uh, percent. And But then the HR director might say, well, are you kidding me? Here's another way to think about it. Imagine if 1% of our employees couldn't do something they need to and sent me an email there's no way I can deal with that traffic. It needs to be far less. And that's a much more reasonable number, I think. And I think that's the kind of conversation that might happen between uh, two people. And uh, that's the kind of conversations I think you'd be doing. Yeah. I mean, it, there was one extra part though, that, that, that you skipped over, which was that like, it can be difficult uh, you know, to do the measuring because like consumer services can be clearly definable, but infrastructure services may not have a direct owner. So they could be like, going back to your HR example. Uh, you know, those, those internal ones can sometimes be a little bit more difficult to deal with. Yep. Uh, absolutely. Uh, also, uh, just identifying the risk tolerance of consumer uh, services. Sometimes a, a service will have its own dedicated team, which is really nice. Uh, and I mean, this is basically what you just said. Sometimes there is no owning team. And I was thinking like Jenkins might be an example here. Like if, if uh, a build isn't working, is it, <laughs> You know, who's responsible for it? Maybe it's a problem with the stage uh, of the build. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a problem with uh, one of the services that's, you know, pulling from our artifact or something. Maybe it's a problem provisioning a build agent. Uh, But someone has to take the initiative to go look and start. And, you know, if I I would have mentioned it might be three different teams there. Like, who starts with it? Yeah, I mean, here's an example. Imagine you you live in a world where uh, multiple teams are contributing to an ultimate uh, site. And let's pretend this was in, like, a Kubernetes or some kind of, like, you know, shared space like that, right? And maybe one of the services that is being deployed in this environment is a Redis, right? Now, all the teams are using this thing right? Who's responsible for it when it goes down? Yeah. Right. And like, you know, uh, an even better example that came up, if we're, if we speak strictly to Kubernetes, what happens when like SED gets full? Right. Yeah. Like right. everybody in the cluster is relying on that thing. Right. And now nobody can write like secrets or config maps or stuff, you know, cause like, uh, you know, there's something like more, uh, overarching like sometimes so that's the point is that sometimes like deciding who is that owner can be a little bit more difficult but what they say is a lot of times if if there is no clear-cut owner the engineers will end up taking ownership of it and then defining the reliability requirements themselves because i mean think about it right i know jay-z i know outlaw we're all sort of like this if you encounter the same problem enough times like i'm not manually handling it the third time, right? I'm, I'm going and finding a way to write something to take care of it. So I don't have to deal with it anymore. And I think that's ultimately what's, what ends up happening here, right? Like if, if developers look at it and say, man, it's costing me two days a week to keep Redis going. Um, we need to figure out how to fix that. Then they're going to start figuring out how can we make it to where we're not having to even touch this thing, right? And so they start defining what they want the reliability of Redis to be so that they never have to go look at it again. This also goes back to like the strong culture though within Google where like 
you know, the people are kind of empowered to, to do that and to make those decisions. So like, you know, you have to have buy-in from the management, which was something that we had mentioned from the, the previous episode, uh, as it, as it relates to this topic is, you know, this can't just happen because you alone as a developer on your team want it to happen, you know? And, And so because they have that kind of, uh, culture where this is, you know, a thing, then they can do that. And so some factors in assessing the risk tolerance, um, what level availability is needed. We've talked about that. Uh, do different failures have different effects on the service? Uh, Redis, uh, or Redis is a good example because maybe it just slows things down or maybe it leads to a database failure. Um, you know, so you got to figure out uh, what's going to happen there. Uh, if you use the service cost to help identify where on the risk continuum it belongs, Okay, so um, so hold up. We need to pause here because this was in the book and we didn't I didn't really go into the notes and describe this very well. They call this risk continuum. It's sort of like this line. Like where does this thing fall? Right? And and you're trying to align it with with the objectives versus the reliability stuff, right? And so this risk continuum, they're basically saying, hey, if you can align this thing on the line using cost, then you could sort of help figure out where it should belong. Um, I think we talked a little bit about dread scores in terms of security, like many years ago. And uh, dread was an acronym where it's like discoverability, repeatability. Um, you know, it just basically had to do with kind of classifying, uh, coming up with a single number for uh, vulnerability. So you could say, well, you know, um, it's a five on discoverability because it's probably not going to, you know, someone have to have a lot of knowledge. But the reproduci- reproducibility, once you know about it, is really high. It's really easy to reproduce. So that would factor in. And in the end, you kind of average those things up and get a single score. So, so that's what I kind of imagine with there being a continuum here. Well, I mean, I, it was kind of a weird one, though, because it's are they literally saying like, hey, it cost us, let's say, a million dollars to build this service. So on the continuum, like if it's down, if it's completely down, then that's a million dollars that we lost to build that service, right? Like that's what the service cost us. So what I was imagining is, um, you know, the HR example I keep coming back to is saying that that's hard to come up with some good metrics and good numbers around. But one way to look at it is to say, well, how much does HR system cost us? Uh, it costs us uh, $3,000 a day. So if it's down, for an hour, it costs us this much money. So it's kind of a way of saying this service, this is how much money we just kind of burned on having stuff running that wasn't, uh, you know, helping anybody. Uh, whereas compare that to like global search, right? Where it's like, well, that costs us a million dollars a day to run. Uh, and so an hour there is much more valuable. So it's, uh, it, it costs more. So it's just kind of saying like a way of saying like this service costs this much money to run. So if it goes down, it's that much more important just because of how much it costs us and saying it's just one factor. It's not the only one by far, but if you're having a hard time coming up with things, you know, it's uh, something to consider. Yeah. So, so in fairness, this one is identifying the risk tolerance of consumer services. So I think it might be the cost to the consumer. So, you know, if it's a super high expensive thing, like, I don't know, big table, um, then, then maybe you want to make sure that it's more reliable depending on what it is. So I think that's where they were going with this one. It makes it so if you know if I'm paying for uh, Kubernetes and a whole bunch of nodes and it's down and I'm I just paid you a bunch of money for this thing you know then that stinks. Whereas uh, Netflix if Netflix goes down you know uh, for an hour like well it's like okay I paid eight dollars a month for it or whatever you know so oh. it's kind of okay so oh, said yeah. another way like 
you know, you can create a Gmail account for free and, and check your Gmail. Yeah. So if it's down, eh, not such a big deal. Right. Right. But if I'm like a big customer of like specifically, let's say Google, right. Uh, a Google cloud and you know, yeah. now Google cloud goes down, then that's a much bigger cost service cost. And so on the risk continuum, they are on an opposite extreme from the free Gmail account. Totally. Yes. I think they even use the example of like Google apps, uh, business apps. They do later on. Yep. So, so yeah, next up we got the target level availability. So this one's kind of interesting. You know, what do the users expect? Um, is the service directly linked to any revenue? So this would be, you know, are, are you paying for a Gmail account or something, right? Like if you're a business customer, um, is it a free or a paid service? Is there a competing service and what is their level of service, right? So, so somebody like Google may take a look at their GCS product and say, Hey, what, what is Azure blob storage? What is their reliability, um, SLO or what is AWS's S3 SLO, right? Like that's probably something that they all shop around to make sure that they're being competitive there. Uh, what's the target market? Is it consumers? Is it enterprises? Um, you know, whatever. Um, and then this is where Jay-Z, if you want to jump into this one, you just kind of brought it up a second ago, the, the apps. Yeah. And so kind of the idea that um, if I'm paying for something, I expect a better service. And there's also even uh, amongst the, the Google docs, like if you think about like maybe a PowerPoint presentation might, or, you know, uh, whatever they call it, um, slide t- slide, it might be more valuable because the chances of it going down while someone's actually about to do a presentation, you know, the, the severity might be worse uh, compared to email where you just refresh it. And remember, Google measures stuff in, in terms of um, percentage of failure, request failure. So we're not really talking about total outages. We're talking about number of requests failing. But it can be really scary if you're camping your presentation up right before a big presentation. Whereas email, you know, so what? And so that's kind of thing. Same with maps. Like if, if I Google Maps free service. But if I can't get directions when I need it, if I'm running late and I can't, you know, get the service I've been relying on, that's going to sting me more as a customer than uh, maybe something else like, you know, email. It it was interesting, though, when they talked about their apps, because, you know, when companies buy into the like G suite of products, their company business is sort of running on Google's infrastructure at that point. Right. And so they prioritize that kind of stuff super high because they know that. If your, um, you know, like you said, your slide decks are down, or if your internal email or internal calendars are down, like that can actually cost a business a lot of time and money. Yeah, and some, sometimes it's more than just that that time too. Like, yeah, the you're doing a presentation with the board of directors, and you know, <laughs> you can't bring up your stuff. Like that's a that's a big problem. You may not get the opportunity again. Right. I mean, they got to be pretty good at it, right? Because would you care to take a guess at how many times Google has been down? Google, the yeah, I remember website, once. the Google, Google services. Google let's, let's say Google services. How many times do you think Google services have gone down? What's Google services made like, like <laughs> Gmail or YouTube or oh, okay. what drive, whatever, any of any of the Google products, um, like down, down, like can't reach it down, down, down. Oh, uh, um, I'm going to say single digits. It's probably ridiculous. We talk at all time. Yeah. All time. Give me a number, man. 20, <laughs> 20, 20. Okay. So that, do you realize like Google was formed in the late nineties, right? Nineties. 20 
is an it's incredibly ridiculous. low number, right? Agreed. And Jay-Z Agreed. went even further extreme to cut that in half and say <laughs> somewhere in single digits. He said nine. Are you ready for this number? <laughs> I don't even, I, I'm not going to believe it. It's four. Wow. Four. It's incredible. <laughs> there was an outage in October of 2018 that took out YouTube for a period of time. And then the other three were all in 2020. Oh, wow. There was a six hour one that took out Gmail, Google Drive, Google Docs, Google Meet, and Google Voice. Then in that was August of 2020. In November of 2020, there was an outage that took out YouTube and Google TV. And then in December of 2020, there was an outage that took out Gmail, YouTube, Google Drive, Google Docs, Google Calendar, and Google Play. And that one, uh, I forget how long that one was. That one was for like 40 minutes or so. Wow. Four outages. (laughs) They blew those budgets for like years, right? There's a Wikipedia page that lists all four of the outages. It is only four. Yeah, that's impressive, man. Your toddler is older than that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but in fairness, in fairness, they got a little bit of compute power, right? A a little bit. But but the point is, is that like what we're talking about here with the SRE, right? It is no joke. I mean, like they obviously know what they're doing. Not only did they write the book, but I mean, they have the they practice it. They have the proof is in the pudding, right? Like. You can see here they only had the four outages. Hey, so there was actually a cool thing in here that they were talking about. Oh, like you mentioned, YouTube went down um, and all that. When Google first purchased YouTube, they didn't care as much about the reliability side of things. So if if you went to hit a video on occasion and it was down or whatever, they were they were okay with that because they were way more focused on adding more features to the platform. Like, I mean, you got to imagine they wanted to get some ads on there real quick because they knew that was going to be a moneymaker for them. So they were willing to take the hit on the reliability side. So it's, it's interesting that even within their own company, right? Like they look at things and they say, Hey, um, yeah, this is okay. Right. And, and we're going to iterate on this as fast as we can. And then we'll come back to it later. Yeah, I just looked up to see um, the time that I remembered. It was in 2013. It was down for five minutes. And they say that global internet traffic went down 40% in the five wow. minutes. Wow. <laughs> and that was for Google search going down. That's awesome. I, I remember when Amazon went down. Um, when we worked at Amazon, I remember hitting the page and going, wait, is, is my internet down? Yeah. No? NBA.com's loading. <laughs> Remember that S three like there's an S three outage when um some there was some misconfigured router or something around uh, the holidays. Yep. Woo. Fun times. Bad things. So uh, what like when we talk about failures, what kind of failures are we talking about? Uh, in this little section here on the shapes of errors, and they talk about uh, like what's worse, a constant trickle of errors throughout the day, or a full site outage that happens for a shorter amount of time. Answer, of course, is that it depends. Uh, some services you just go to lunch and try back later. And, uh, there's other times when it's really important that, you know, people keep trying like a, the map example, if you're trying to figure out how to meet somebody in 30 minutes and it takes about 30 minutes to get there and you can't pull up the restaurant. That's something that you want. Uh, a, tr- a trickle would probably be more desirable. You don't want that to be gone for two hours. You'd rather have it just, you know, try a few times and have it eventually work. Yeah. But they did share one that was like really bad that you would probably rather have an outage 
if if there was a potential bug in some service yeah. that you had out there that could allow allow people to get private information that they shouldn't have access to, then they were like, you know what? It'd be worth having the unplanned outage, taking the thing down so that nobody could get that private data, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Private data was a great example of something where, yeah, fine, fine to be down. Um, and they always prioritize uh, security over, uh, I think it's like security number one, vul- reliability number two. Um, yeah. Oh, there was another interesting one that they brought up too, is their, their ads. So they said that typically their ads were, were accessed during working hours, right? Which is not surprising. If you have marketers or whatever, they're, they're hitting that stuff between eight and five, nine and six, whatever. And so they were okay with taking the service down in later times at night when they knew that there weren't going to be that many people on or impacted by that, that time. So, they even take a look at what they're doing and say, Hey, you know, we don't necessarily have to have 100% uptime, you know, depending on the service and depending on the usage patterns, we're totally fine with setting up planned timed outages. Right. Yep. And as far as cost goes, um, it's, a uh, you know, very, it ranks very highly on the deciding factors where how much money you make, how much money you cost. Uh, and so, um, just a couple of questions you want to ask to help determine the, the cost reliability kind of ratio is, uh, if you built in one more nine of reliable reliability, how much revenue, uh, go up essentially. And this is, this is a recurring theme in this book. It keeps coming up that it could be very expensive. This is where that, the additional, that business owner knowing the value of whatever that business is, you know, for the company comes into play. And uh, if that additional revenue uh, offsets the actual cost of the reliability, and they have an example of basically like if, um, you know, getting that extra nine costs you $900 a year, but it brought in $1,000 a year, yeah, you know, you may, like, you know, in that case, it's a kind of an example. It's 100 bucks. So, yeah, yeah, sure, go ahead. But, uh, you know, you can imagine where it, it could definitely be more expensive to get that, um, than that extra nine than it's ever going to be worth. I mean, uh, I'll take the extra hundred dollars, though. I mean, yeah. if you didn't want, well, to. I mean, it depends on how how long is it going to take me to get that nine? <laughs> no, right now, we're talking yeah. about my time, not the company time. Right? Oh. Yeah, I think I just got. I would have got flagged on that interview question right there. <laughs> <laughs> Did not get the job. Uh, so, other service metrics. So, knowing which metrics are important, which ones aren't, uh, help you make better decisions. Of course, um, they mentioned. You know, we mentioned the, the example of the AdSense and search. Uh, search's primary metric is speed to results. We want the lowest latency possible. And of course, uh, you know, we want the best research uh, results up top. But AdSense's primary metric is uh, was making sure that it didn't slow down the page load. So uh, this is kind of an example where these are, um, you know, they, they work in tandem. They work together to make for a good user, user uh, experience. But ultimately, we don't care as much about ad search, uh, sorry, ad sense being late or being slow as long as it doesn't affect uh, the primary search. And so, because we have a looser goal basically on ad sense, it's okay to basically pop those in later and just go ahead and show the search results first. No one has ever visited a web page. And as they're like trying to read whatever the blog or, you know, the site is or whatever thought, you know what, I'm going to, I need to leave the site right now because all of the ads targeting, uh, you know, the last guitar I looked at are not showing up in the right rail and, you know, I'm fed up with it if I can't see it again. 
That's right. Right? Like, that's never happened. And, yeah, but also, people love when this the ads actually pop in after you start reading the page and they bump the text It out. moves your text all over. Oh, man, it drives me crazy. <laughs> Um, hey, but you know, you know what was really cool about this? What they, what they explain behind the scenes on this particular one is with the AdSense, because they don't care about it loading later into the page, what they said is that reduces the cost of their infrastructure because they don't need to have that stuff running in as many data centers and regions and whatever else because they're not trying to get like, sub-second like craziness like they are on their search results right so their search is got so much compute power and and is redundant all over the globe where the adsense stuff they're like "Ah, it doesn't matter if it loads from from a network that's you know two states away it's not going to kill us and so they can save on costs because they know the metrics that they're aiming for there and so they're not going for the fastest numbers so it's really interesting that they use those metrics to drive decisions on how they configure their internal infrastructure and all that yeah it's funny if you think about it um if ad doesn't show it's a better customer experience or it's better (laughs) user experience and uh the person you know presumably who bought the ad didn't pay for it because it wasn't shown it wasn't clicked Mm. so it's like hey it's it's a win-win so just don't show ads google (laughs) (laughs) you fixed it (laughs) yeah fixed there you go now just million dollars a day step four profit that's right yeah oh man so uh last six last little thing here note is uh just the different requirements with customer services typically um because they often have uh yeah sorry different or wait help me out here what different requirements than consumer services typically because they are serving multiple clients so infrastructure services are different than consumer services okay because they're serving multiple clients okay so the, the header was part of it the header was part of it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, right. I didn't say that right either. So I didn't help we, you there at all. We, we cleared that up. We're yeah, good. Sorry. It's like, uh, as we know, sometimes I have a, a hard time talking about things like, um, you know, like, um, Sheila Booth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty right, sure that's right, uh, not how yeah, you pronounce his name. Wrong again. I'm the one who's <laughs> the, you know, what, what was my new job title? Uh, sayer of names or something? Sayer yeah, of sayer names. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is that? What is this book? Uh, Sheila Booth, Reliability Interest. Sheila Booth. Sheila Booth, Reliability Interest. Anyway, let's just go on. Yeah. I mean, uh, all of this is difficult. It's like, what's the difference between a poorly dressed man on a tricycle and a well dressed man on a bicycle? The wheel? Um,. Oh yeah, no! A tire. A tire. <laughs> That's good. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> That's yeah, good. See? Told you. Yes. One last one, real quick. When does a right. dad? When does a joke become a dad joke? When outlaw tells it. I don't know. I like that. I'll take that. All right. We'll just end it there. No. <laughs> That's when its punchline becomes apparent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Thank you, Gregory. This episode is sponsored by Retool. Building internal tools from scratch is slow. It takes a lot of engineering time and resources, so most companies just resign to prioritizing a select few and settling for inefficient hacks and workarounds for every other internal business process. Hey, but Retool helps developers build internal tools faster so they can focus on development time on the core product. Retool offers a complete UI, 
component library, so building forms, tables, and workflows is as easy as drag and drop. And that's no joke. We saw that in in the you know the UI. We were given a demo of it, and it is silly simple how easy you can construct these uh, pages. And I like easy, but uh, more importantly, Retool connects to basically any data source, database, or API. They offer app environments, permissions, and single sign-on out of the box. And they offer an escape patch to use custom JavaScript whenever you need it. With Retool, you can build user dashboards, database GUIs, CRUD apps, and any other software to speed up your and simplify your work without Googling for component libraries, debugging dependencies, or rewriting boilerplate code. And thousands of teams at companies like Amazon, DoorDash, Peloton, uh, Brex collaborate around custom-built retool apps to solve internal workflows. And when Jay-Z was talking about like all the uh, integrations, you know, whether it be a database or an API, he's not joking there. Like you can go to retool.com slash integrations, see everything they have there. If you want to like hook up to GitHub, for example, or maybe you just have some GraphQL uh, query that you want to connect to uh, our friends at Datadog, they they've got integrations with them. Circle CI uh, Postgres SQL my favorite database uh, or, you know, maybe you want a SQL server or, you know, we talked about Redis, whatever your uh, integration is. They've got plenty of uh, integrations there to help you out. Learn more. Visit retool.com. <clears throat> oh, all right. Here we go. <laughs> okay. So, so seeing as uh, I naturally have the late night DJ voice right now because of pollen in the Atlanta area. I, so good. Pollen. This man. God. So I am going to do the beg. So if you have not had a chance to leave us a review and you would really like to give back to us and put a smile on our faces, we have a nice little link set up at codingblocks.net slash review where you can go and we have links to leave a review on either iTunes or Audible or I don't know what else we have on there, but we have stuff. So again, we really do appreciate it. We we super love reading that when when people leave nice little messages for us. So if you wouldn't mind, please do that. And now you can even see reviews in Spotify, which outlaw has graceful grace, graciously put a link up there for us. So, gratefully, yep, yep. gracefully and graciously. Did he yep. do this? Um, the sayer of names. So yes, I really you. think that like Alan should be talking to us right now about how he fell into a ring of fire. <laughs> Like I really want to hear him say it right now. Uh, I, I don't have the Johnny Cash. Isn't that Johnny Cash? Yeah, yeah, Johnny yeah. Cash. Yeah, yeah. Come on, I just just one time, Alan. Uh, the Ring of Fire. There you go. Oh my God, it was better than I thought it would be. That's not Johnny Cash. That's social distortion. Gosh. <laughs> well played, sir. All right. Well. Uh, okay. So let's get into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So uh, a few episodes back, we asked, hey, for this year's Game Jam, you are, and your choices were, super prepared, been practicing all year. I'm ready. Eh, I'll figure something out. Or, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. So (laughs) I see you there. I see you there, uh, Johnny Underwood. (laughs) (laughs) Sticking something on his forehead, trying to get back at uh, Joe and I to distract us as we now try to talk. (laughs) But I am a professional and I'm going to stay on topic here. So, right. um, 
This was this is episode one eighty two, so it's even number. Tatuke's trademark rules of engagement. Jay Z, you are up first. All right, I'm going to say I'll figure something out. Ten percent. <laughs> That's <true. laughs> is that enough? He, he shot the moon. <laughs> is that Magnum chicken strikes again? He's counting on his fingers oh. and his toes. Got an abacus here off screen. You can't see it. All right. So no, this is. Oh my god, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, we'll go eleven percent. I mean, we we're going crazy high here. And, and of course, it is. Oh my god, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, sixty-one percent of the vote. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's good. And, and yet, yet great stuff came out of it. So that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Really good stuff came out of it. Yeah. Um, all right. So for this episode's survey, I thought, you know, we're, last episode, we kind of tied in DevOps to the topic. And, and even in this conversation so far, we've kind of tied in DevOps into the conversation. And there's, there's a lot of overlap there. I think we could all agree to, right? So, you know, in general, We've spent you know several years now talking about DevOps. We've gone through several books and whatnot. So just as a general rule of thumb, like, how do we feel about DevOps? And your choices are, love it. It's the greatest. Or, it's great when things work. Or, it's okay. It's overrated. Or, I wish we had a good DevOps pipeline. Or, it's a dream. Nobody does that. Should we should we lead the witnesses on this? No, 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 no never. No I, know I know the answer. <laughs> It'll be ten percent. I was going to say ten percent of the vote. I think he learned his lesson. He's going to go with like thirteen or fourteen percent next time. Maybe yeah. you never know. Yeah, you never know. Maybe. Uh, I'll also uh, don't forget we're giving away a book, so uh, drop a comment here, and uh, we'll hit you up. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, those, those comments really do help. Um, you know, anything that you could do to, uh, uh, well, I was thinking more about the comments on like the leaving the review comments, but yeah, uh, that Alan was referring to leave a comment on the episode too. We appreciate that too. But those comments, the, the reviews that Alan referred to in his, uh, not Johnny cash pollen voice, uh, <laughs> help because, you know, they, they bring in more listeners and then, you know, we can have ads that, you know, we get to pay more money for. And, you know, like, because we have expensive costs, right? Like, I mean, you know, we have to wear these headphones all the time. And like this, you know, now I'm going deaf. So I sent my hearing aids in for repair two weeks ago. That's right. I haven't heard anything since, but. <laughs> you know, I can't even work without headphones on anymore. Like, I don't have to have anything playing. I don't have to yeah. be in a meeting. But I just, I'm like, where, where? They block out sound. Yeah, for sure. Uh, no, not. Do we need to go back to the shopping's pre episode? Because with these beautiful Callies. That's right. That's right. Like, I'm trying to block out the world, man. Mm, no. <laughs> Thank you, Derek, for that joke, by the way. <laughs> Very nice. All right. So let's talk about target level of availability. So, one approach, I think we kind of just hinted on this, though. One approach of, of reliability may not be suitable for all the needs, right? So, uh, what was the example that we just gave was related to the business apps, uh, the, um, oh, yeah. uh, the Google, the Google apps versus, uh, AdSense. Yeah. So, um, they gave an example of big table in the book and it was actually a really cool story because <clears throat> they were saying that like, depending on what the usage is of the, 
of the application, you could actually even like have different tiers of service that you could charge different levels of reliability for. So in, they gave this example where they're saying like, Hey, if you want like super high reliability, and I think I hinted on this even in the last episode, if you need like super high reliability, then, uh, you know, it's going to be hyper expensive, right? due to the additional compute that you're going to get for that. But if that's what your use case is and you're willing to pay for it, then here's a service level for you. Like here's a, here's a cost that you can pay. But if what you want to do is like uh more like offline batch analytical type programming or, uh, you know, processing, then, you know, you might not need that higher level of reliability. And so therefore, uh, you know, you can be in a different tier of service and pay less for it. And, you know, but as a result, you know, you're willing to take that hit of, uh, you know, it might not be quite as fast as the other one. But yeah, it's so always running, right? Yep. Uh, I should mention, too, that uh, actually uh, you re- you mispronounced uh, Bigtable there. Bigtable? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a capital T. <clears throat> it's Bigtable. Uh, that's, all, that's always bothered me about Bigtable. And it, they, they actually do pronounce it as big table, but it's it's little t in one word. It really is. So it looks like big table. <laughs> yeah. That was your tip of the week. A little journey through Jay Z's mind. <laughs> kind of scary, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me too. For me too. Uh, <laughs> so different types of uh, different types of failures. Uh, so real time querying once requests queues to almost always be empty. Uh, so can service uh, requests uh, as soon as possible. Uh, offline analytical, analytical resourcing. Oh my gosh. Offline analytical processing uh, is more about getting uh, right answers and just throughput in general. So uh, we care less about, uh, you know, latency, more about uh, just always getting the work done. Um, so it's kind of it, like it's two different, two different cues, but different, um, different goals with it. Like <laughs> one cues we want to always be empty and the other we want to always be full. And you know what's right. weird about that is, it's literally the same technology stack, right? Like it's yeah. same exact stuff, but what would be successful for one would be viewed as failing on the other. Right. And so it's, it's pretty interesting that you can't even look at the same freaking thing and say, uh, Hey, what, what's my success criteria? Right. It's yeah. not, it's the use case that you have to go after. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so cost, uh, can you partition the services such that, uh, different clusters can have those different needs. And we kind of talked about that a little bit, um, you know, maybe for some big table uh, customers, they care more about, let me fix this low latency and high availability. <laughs> and uh, others may, you know, care more about uh, throughput and uh, exposing those cost savings, get, giving the customers the levers to make the right decisions for their business uh, is fantastic. And it kind of takes some of the decisions uh, away from your SREs. Although, uh, <laughs> it does complicate things, right? Um, so you got to kind of split your, uh, you'll have different levels of objectives for those. But, um, but it, I don't know that it complicates things too much because what they said is typically it's the same exact stack. It's just configuration levers that they change, right? So, so does it really complicate things? I guess you have more things you need to test out to make sure they operate properly in those different environments. But technically you're spinning up the same software, just, you know, changing variables here and there. Yeah. I guess I was expecting to have different SLOs based on, on uh, the kind of the, the service tier, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe you wouldn't. 
Yeah, it, it is kind of interesting. I'm guessing what they were talking about with like always wanting empty queues versus always full queue or, or queues that have things to, to be processed. Would they set up separate metrics for those different types of environments? I'm would, guessing they would. I would assume so. Like, yeah. I mean, cause you know, like, like you just said with the queue thing, for example, right? Like, uh, what was it? The, uh, where was it? The real time querying you wanted to have always an empty queue so that it can be real time, you know, versus the offline, you, you're trying to just do as much as you possibly can. So you always want it doing something. So you, you would want to know like, Hey, is the real time queue backing up? Because if so, I need to address that somehow. You, you'd have to have different observability for it. I think you'd probably, you might have the same metric, right? Like the queue size. Um, but you might have different alerts set up for, for different sets or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's definitely interesting. Um, yeah. So, oh, this, this was actually my favorite part of this entire chapter here. I don't know about you guys, but this, uh, this motivation for error budgets. So when I read this title, I had no idea what this meant. I still didn't know what it meant, even until I got down to like another couple paragraphs, but basically what they get at here is there's there's tension between SRE teams and feature development teams, right? Um, we've talked about this in the past too, right? Like SRE, they want to keep things going. They want things running. And development teams want to release features. And those two things are at odds because every time you release something, you're introducing risk and potential downtime. Um, but uh, I jumped way too far ahead here. So there's there's a few things that they need to look at here. So software fault tolerance. How fault tolerant should the software be, right? Like how well does it handle unexpected events? Testing. If there's too little testing, then it could be a bad user experience, right? And we're talking about unit testing. We're talking about end-to-end testing, all kinds of testing, not not just one particular type. Um, if you have too much, you never ship, right? Like if you're trying to make everything absolutely perfect, hit every edge case, you're not going to ship the software. Let's go back to like that DevOps handbook, right? Remember like there was this whole pyramid of testing that you might do. So like you might have like, uh, unit testing, integration testing, uh, end to end testing, performance testing, uh, user acceptance testing, right? Like if you were to say, well, we can't even ship it until we get to that top tier, right? You, you, you might not never ship depending on like what your product is, you know, and you gotta be willing to accept some. Totally. And the worst thing is, you know, we say you'll never ship, which I mean, chances of that happening are slim to none but but what you could do is you could miss your opportunity right like if the market is positioned in a way to where if you get your software out the door you can um profit on that if you're trying to wait to get to perfect then you may miss that opportunity right so you you could have missed the boat um push frequency um code updates are risky we talked about that anytime you push to production or wherever you're introducing potential risk right because if it's been running fine for the past month and then you change something there's a chance that it might not run run fine for the next day um so should you reduce the number of pushes or should you um like work on getting more features out there like that's a question you have to ask get the features out i still want to live in a world where like we've read stories about you know like i remember facebook had uh article out like well over a decade ago where the developers could um you know they weren't done until they saw it in production and they could literally do their own deployment for their thing 
as part of the effort, right? So, you know, you get a ticket, you're going to start like, oh, yeah, I need to like move the pixel, you know, the, the image three pixels to the left, or I need to make the logo on fire. And you could like do it and then deploy it. And that was all within your capability because they had so much automation in play and so much uh, testing of that in play to prevent you, you know, it kind of acted as like gates, automated gates to, you know, protect you. Um, but because of that, there was like this huge confidence that they could just get it out there as soon as possible. Right. So I definitely want to live in that world where like, you know, don't reduce the pushes to production, get the feature or the bug fix out as soon as, as soon as it's ready. And there's also something to be said for like smaller deployments too. So totally smaller deployments are safer. We've talked about it in the past, but for sure. Um, this last part that they had here in this section for the motivation for error budgets was canary um, deployments, right? The duration and size. Now this is interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in these terms before. Um, so canary deployments, you're typically trying to, to see how something will go, but you're usually doing it on a subset of the workload. So you're sizing it down, right? Hey, does this thing operate well in this environment? And the questions that they asked were, how long do you wait on canary testing to see if something does go wrong? And how big do you make the canary? Meaning like what size of the subset of data do you do? Right? Like we have talked about this, but in different terminology uh, regards. So um, most notably in like the way of feature flagging to where you could feature flag, uh, you know, uh, you could use feature flags so that a portion of your traffic gets directed to that new feature. So specifically the example that we did talk about bringing up Facebook again was how uh, they had like the messaging was already out there. Um, the Facebook messenger was already out and deployed in the wild before, you know, you know, everybody realized it and they were able to like slowly add on people and see, you know, how well it was working and get some metrics about it beforehand. And then over time you could keep increasing that, uh, you know, in this case, canary size, um, until you're like ready to make it, you know, uh, a feature that everybody can have. And of course they're, you know, I assume they're referring to canarying as the canary in the coal mine kind mm-hmm. of thing where you're just seeing like, which is kind of a gruesome, uh, you know, <laughs> way to approach this, you know, like, you know, you put the canary in the coal mine and see if he dies like that's right. an awful, if he doesn't come back. Yeah. Way to talk about this. So yeah. Um, what, I mean, yeah, what you do. Hey, we talked about tracer rounds in a previous episode, so you're shooting we your did. code, we did. right? Yeah, so, you know, why not fly a bird into something? Kind of or that. But yeah, we yeah. did. All right, so, hey, um, there was actually a quote in here, and I think it's from somewhere else, too. I don't remember, but... Um, last S- we talked about it, yeah. Did we? Oh, I yeah, it was literally the, ti- the title of the last, of uh, chapter one, I believe. All right, so we're skipping this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they got to tell us now. And people are going to go back and be like, what are they talking about? No, that's our motto. Um, hope is not a strategy. Um, all right. So this, this is the part that I thought was really good. So forming your error budget. Now, what in the world is this? So both teams, the SRE team and your, your feature development team should define a quarterly budget based on the services SLO, right? So whether it's 99% uptime or 99.9 or whatever, um, What's cool about this is this determines how unreliable a service could be within a quarter. 
Um, and it removes the politics between the SRE and the product development team. So you say, Hey, we want our service. Uh, if you're Google in this case, right? The number of requests have to fall within our 99%, um, SLA, right? Or SLO service level, um, objective, objective. Yeah. So, um, going back to what we said earlier, 99.99% on 2.5 million is 250 failed requests, right? So, that's how many you get for the quarter if if there's only 2.5 million requests that are made in a quarter. I got 99.99 problems, but service request ain't one. Ain't one. That's right. Um, Maybe so, it is. Some of the times. It depends. <laughs> 52 and a half minutes out of the year it is, but. Yeah. <laughs> Good God. That's still crazy. <laughs> that's so crazy to think about. Um, So. Here's here's where this gets interesting, right? So this removes politics, but product management sets the SLO, right? So hey, I've I've got my new Gmail thing out there. I'm going to set the SLO. I want it to be 99% uptime because, you know, who cares if some of the background polls for new emails fail? That's fine. For the quarter, the actual uptime then needs to be measured, but the important part is it needs to be by an uninvolved third party, right? And Google says basically they have their own monitoring system out there. So that's like the um, third party. Now, this is where things get interesting. The difference between the actual downtime and what the SLO was is your error budget. So if you said that you're allowed to have, just for easy numbers, let's say you're allowed to have 10,000 failures for the quarter for your service. If you've only had 10 failures, then you've got 9,990 failures left in your budget. That's kind of a cool way of looking at things. Um, and as long as you have budget left, then you can do a release. I love this approach. We actually did a hint on this um, last episode. I, I kind of like... Uh got ahead and because there was an example that they gave where they were talking about the rack where you might have like the switch at the top of the rack. Right. And they were saying that like, Hey, you know, sometimes your error budget can, can be shot, not because of anything that you did. Right. That, that switch goes out, that networking switch goes out and takes out everything in it. And if that's the only place where your uh, application was, well then for the quarter, you, your entire error budget is spent. You don't get to do any deployments. And that's another one of those examples that we talked about where it requires strong buy-in from management to be able to say like, Hey, um, I know it's only January 2nd, but we're not going to do another deployment until April 1st. So, so I did want to say, I talked to, um, uh, I'm sorry, our, uh, at, I'm sorry, our, in a second, he mentioned, um, that security fixes are still going out. Bug fixes are still going out. It's really about those feature releases that are, are not going to go out. You know, no one's going to say like, Ooh, log for J, uh, exploit, you know, but sure. Yeah. yeah. So heart bleed comes out. You're going to, you're going to go ahead and fix that. Right. Yeah, but, he also mentioned just how important the management angle was. Yeah. They, they all have to have buy-in, but how cool is that though? I mean, when you think about that, really, that's a really nice approach, right? Like, hey, as long as as long as the development team is doing a good job in making their software reliable and and when it deploys, there's not there's not problems when it deploys, 
they can keep deploying every day if they want, right? Like you're not burning your budget. However, if you did something particularly nasty that took you down for a while and, and you ate into 7,000 of your 10,000 budget, you just blew through two thirds of your budget and, and you're at the beginning of your quarter. You now got to think about what you're going to do over the next three months because you had a particularly nasty release. I think that is a really good way for teams to sort of do a good job themselves making sure they're putting out a quality product. It's also a super mature uh, way of addressing your service, right? Like, you know, there's there's a maturity level there. The, The management's bought into it. You have the observability and the metrics for it. You know, you you were able to calculate what is a reasonable uh, error budget and you're able to track on that. And, you know, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of buildup is the point is that, mm-hmm. you know, in order to, to get to this point. Well, I think the first building block and we've talked about it before is the metrics. If you don't have metrics, how are you going to measure anything? Right? Like, how do you know how successful you are or how bad you are or how you don't, Right. So getting that in place allows you to start making decisions without it. You're flying blind. Well, I mean, like the where I'm where I was thinking about this, though, as I was saying that is that, OK, let, let's take our current, you know, work, uh, uh, you know, life. Right. We couldn't just say like, hey, um, you know, here's here's, uh, you know, our error budget. Right. Like right. we would have to go, we would, you'd have to sit down and think about that. Like, that's not just something you can just arbitrarily like, I think, you know what? Uh, a thousand, a thousand errors sound feels right. That that's what my gut's telling me. And I'm going to go with it. Like, no, you can't do that. Like you, you really need to have the t- taking the time to sit down and figure out like, okay, what's realistic? Like what is, uh, you know, what does it matter to my customers? Like what's, what's the, the, perceived loss or, or actually, you know, uh, law actual loss with, you know, any customers for outages and things like that. So like, you know, it, it, there's a level of maturity there to be able to get to this point. Yeah. It's pretty awesome to think about. So the benefits we'll touch on real quick here. I mean, we've already talked about some of them, but this approach actually provides a good balance for both teams to succeed, both the development, the product development team, and the SRE team, right? It's they can look at it and they can see what their budget is. Um, and if the budget's nearly empty, then the product developers start spending more time testing and hardening their product, right? It's they don't stop working, but they're not going to be releasing more features. And so they can take that time and make it to where the next time they release, it goes a little bit smoother, right? With, with fewer problems. So that's pretty awesome. Or write more testing around previous errors to make sure that they don't happen again, or, you know, they're caught ahead of time. Yep. And then, so outlaw hit on the, the switch thing, right? Like if it goes out, you know, it's like, well, sorry, (laughs) that's just what happened. You know, you guys are gonna have to eat it with the budget, but what they said that this can actually do is it can bring to light some some overly aggressive reliability um, targets that people have hit that, or are trying to hit, right? Like, let's say that, you know, something happened that you couldn't control and all of a sudden your entire budget's eaten. You can look at it and be like, yeah, you know what? Our reliability goals are way too high. 
we should back off this a little bit because otherwise we're never going to be able to release another feature. Right. So again, I think that goes back to what outlaw said with the level of maturity, you you have to be able to reevaluate that stuff and say, and, and be honest with yourself and the, and the group and the product and be like, yeah, I think we were, we were a little too aggressive here. Yep. So, uh, We'll have links to the resources we like in this episode. Clearly, uh, sre.google will be one of the many in there. And uh, yeah, with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah. So I've actually got a couple here um, today. So I'm going to lead off with the one that is a follow-up to one that I did last last episode with the Guava library from Google. So Michael Warren wrote us on the previous episodes show notes and let us know that there is actually an update to the cache library. So Google has even pointed to this other one, this GitHub library from Ben Mains. It's called caffeine and it's a, I guess it's more of a standalone caching implementation that they've done and Google even recommends it from their own guava pages. So uh, if you are looking for some of those caching features, go take a look at that uh, instead of necessarily pulling in the guava stuff, which I'm assuming if they're, if they're pointing to this other library, they don't plan on building this up or maintaining it. Um, they're probably deprecating it eventually. So um, excellent. Thank you for the tip there. Michael. And then the other one I wanted to share because I I get into this flow where I'll be working on things. And I I don't know, as as a developer that gets involved in a lot of stuff, I get pulled off tasks a lot. I don't know about you guys. Does that ever happen to you? Do you get off task a lot? Do you get pulled off, off your task to do another task? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes I get to work on the tasks I'm supposed to. Oh, that's, Is that's that kind of, that's kind of like it. Yeah. I think that's kind of like it. Maybe that's what happens to me. Maybe sometimes I actually get to work on it, but so here's the gist of it, right? So I check out a branch, um, and I start working on it and I get pulled off on something two or three days later, I come back to it and I'm like, Oh man, what did I branch this off of? Where is this supposed to go? Is this supposed to go into my release branch? Is it supposed to go into the dev branch? Like, I don't remember where I started or what I was doing. Well, there's something that I do when I do get checkouts that helps me with that is the actual command is get checkout dash B space branch name space dash T the dash T tells Git to track the branch that you branched off of. So let's say that I created a branch called ABC, right? And I told it to track the branch that I branched off of, which might've been dev. What I can do after that, there's another command in Git where you can type in Git branch space dash VV. And it's a, a verbose version of the branches you have. Cause if you just type in Git branch, it'll give you a list of all the branches you have locally, right? If you do Git branch dash VV, it'll give you a list of those branches, but it'll also show if you tracked another branch, it'll show you the branch that you tracked off of. So I can look at it and say, Oh, okay. My branch ABC, I branched off dev. Cool. I'm going to, I'm going to end up what I do need to do a pull to get new code in. Then I'll get it from the dev branch. Right. So, um, and it also makes it easier when you do the tracking like that, 
<clears throat> if you happen to switch back over to your dev branch and you do a get pull to get in the latest changes from your origin, and then you switch back over to your other branch, it'll tell you, hey, um, your this branch is you know twenty five changes behind dev. Just do a get pull and it'll pull it in because it was tracking your local dev branch. So that's all really nice. Um, there are tons of little caveats to when you don't have to do this. I'm not going to go over all those because I mean, it's just too much information, but there is a way to set this up to where you never actually have to do the dash T if you don't want to have to remember it. You can do a git config dash dash global branch auto setup merge and set it to always. And it will always track the branch that you branched off of. So that's a nice way to do it. The, I recommend that if you're doing it locally, that's fine. But I still always do the dash T because if I get on another system, another computer, another environment, then I don't have to check to see if that global config set, but it's nice to know that it exists. So all that'll be in the show notes. Um, that is, that is my Michael outlaw tip of, of this. week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to clarify that was branch dot auto setup. Yeah. 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 Totally. I didn't read it verbatim. Dash dash right. global branch dot auto setup merge dot or space always. Yep. Very nice. All right. So uh just checked my watch and it's been uh ten minutes since I mentioned M Suriar. So um <laughs> ding ding ding. Uh so uh got two tips uh from him. And uh the first one, <clears throat> I'm just gonna read part of this uh talk description here and, and uh y'all can let me know if this um if this rings any bells. So your job title says software engineer, but you seem to spend most of your time in meetings. You'd like to have time to code, but nobody else is onboarding the junior engineers, updating the roadmap, talking to the users, noticing the things that got dropped, asking questions on design documents, and making sure that everyone's going in roughly the same direction. If you stop doing those things, the team won't be as successful. Now, someone's suggesting that maybe you're not, uh, that maybe you'd be happier in a less technical role. If that describes you, congratulations. You're the glue. If it's not, have you thought about who is filling this role on your team? I'm going to skip the next paragraph and just uh, end with this. Let's talk about how to allocate glue work deliberately, frame it usefully, and make sure that everyone is choosing a career path that they actually want to be on. Mm. That's uh, just really cool talk. It's for ex-Googler. They're a lead at um, a Squarespace now. And so there's an excellent talk that I, I listened to that's uh, really nice. And I think that it makes um, a lot of really good points, uh, you know, but also, you know, of course, about career management and, you know, making sure that you're doing uh, visible work, but also just about um, recognizing when you are doing these kinds of tests and recognizing who is doing it and kind of what that means for the team. So I thought that was really interesting. And that can be a source of frustration for like senior, senior engineers all the time where you feel like you're not getting any work done, but really you're doing this really important stuff that isn't always um, seen or noticeable. So uh, great. Interesting. Talk. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to have to get I'm that going one. to watch that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I got a second one here for you. So uh, I mentioned earlier, I hinted that there are other books uh, from Google and actually, this one's even listed on the SRE.Google site, but it's not under the slash books section for some reason. There's a book called Anatomy of an Incident. Google Site Reliability Engineer. You know, I can't say <laughs> they that. can't say that word. <laughs> you want to give it one more try? Cyber so, Site no. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't do it. Uh, you could never have that job title. 
No, I can't. What's your job title? I really want to. I really want to. I'm an SRE. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Three. So it's all about Google's approach to incident management uh, for production services. So not only managing with the uh, incidents and dealing with them proactively in order to preventing them essentially and being ready for them, but also uh, doing things like postmortems and whatnot. It's just a free book. Uh, it's really useful if you're uh, getting into that or you just want to get better at it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and if you want this free book, just leave a comment on this episode. <laughs> I don't know if this one it's an O'Reilly book. I assume you could buy a hard copy of it. I don't know. Yeah. They got PDF EPUB and Moby. No reason. That's nice. Huh? So now you want a physical. It feels good. It smells yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. You know, yesterday I had a clown open a door for me. <laughs> what? I thought it was a nice jester. <laughs> <laughs> so uh for uh, my tip of the week, one, uh, you know, I mean, we, we do a lot of Kubernetes stuff in, in our day to day. And uh, if you are too, then, you know, if you aren't already using Minikube, if you, well, first of all, if you're using Docker desktop for your Kubernetes work, I, I guess this is like a PSA, like there's, there's better ways out there. Uh, no offense to Docker desktop, but you know, the, I, I, I'm a fan of Minikube because you can very easily uh, specify the version of Kubernetes that you want to use, which to me is critical if you want to be able to test your uh, infrastructure against a prod-like environment going back to our DevOps handbook. And so uh, being able to specify that version is is critical. And um, you know, Minikube allows you easily to do that. But... Now that you've you're using Minikube, I've convinced you of all of its wonders, and you know, such a salesman. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Sold it like thirty it. seconds. That was really good. Yeah. So, um, you know, you might want to be able to see, like, hey, of all my pods, like, do I have any like heavy pods? Like, what, which ones are doing the most work and whatnot? So, go to your favorite terminal, Minikube space add-ons space enable space metrics dash server. Enter that in, and then you can do something like a kube cuddle space top space pods. So, you know, or if you have it alias to K, so K top pods. And you can see like your pods based on uh, memory and CPU. You can see how they're performing and, and whatnot. So, that, you know, that's pretty cool. And also, hey, here's another really cool thing that you can do with Minikube. If, if my, if I didn't just sway you, already for with my that 30 second salesman uh you know speech that i did before you can type in minikube dashboard and that'll bring up a page that will um if you're using something like a google uh you know a gke google kubernetes environment you know it'll it'll be you know kind of like that where you can see the nodes and the pods and all the different uh kubernetes resources that are in that cluster you know quote cluster of one VM on your machine, but whatever, like you can see some cool stats that are going on. That might be like helpful to you to know, like, Hey, do I have, um, am I, am I, you know, requesting too much, uh, you know, f- for all of these pods that I want to d- dev on locally, or, you know, maybe the limit is, uh, you know, maybe I'm well above the limit and that's why my local cluster keeps crashing every time I'm trying to dev on it, you know, things like that. Hey, so. I do. I do want to call out one thing on the Minikube thing, only because it confused the ever living heck out of me when I first started dealing with Kubernetes. 
So Docker desktop nowadays, as Michael mentioned, has Kubernetes built in. You can easily turn it on. When you, at least back then, when you'd start looking into Kubernetes things, they'd tell you to use Minikube. And and what confused me is I thought that Minikube was using Docker for, for its images and stuff. So they're two totally separate products, right? So Minikube is running a Kubernetes cluster in its own little like um, configurations, right? It's its own little world. It doesn't care about Docker desktop or it doesn't have to generally speaking. So what you can do with Minikube is you can run a Kubernetes cluster and do all the cube cuddle stuff there. What you can't do is you can't do like a Docker run and expect everything to work there. Even though it has a Docker daemon, it won't let you do it exactly the way that you think you should. So my whole point in saying this is if you're confused, if you want to get started with Kubernetes, you could totally just use Docker desktop and turn on Kubernetes there, but you are stuck with the version that they bundle with Docker desktop, which is what outlaw was saying. You can't specify a version. And if you allocate resources to that thing, let's say that you give it 10 gigs of Ram and whatever that's taking that. Now, if you wanted to run Minikube as well, that is going to start another separate VM that is going to require its own resources. So if you give it 10 gigs of RAM, it's going to be its own cluster. Docker is going to have its own 10 gigs of RAM and they don't operate together. So it was confusing to me when I first started out because a lot of tutorials would say, Hey, use Minikube, but then Docker desktops like, yo, use Kubernetes here. And, and I didn't understand it. So just know that they are two totally separate things. Right? Let's be honest. If you're just starting out, then everything involving Kubernetes is a bit to take in. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of information. So, but you know, we should do an episode on it. you're in good company there. And, uh, you know, like you're not the only one, right? Well, so. you, you know, what's funny. The, the reason, the reason I got so frustrated is I was following a tutorial and it was like, Hey, um, go to the metrics dashboard or whatever, or this, this metrics add on thing. Right. And I'm like, it's not working. And I'm using the Docker desktop thing. And it's like, it's not there. I can't get it to work. I spent hours trying to figure it out. And then I was like, okay, I, I don't get it. And, and it was just the fact that the tutorial was from the standpoint of Minikube where, you know, I was using the built-in Kubernetes and des- Docker desktop. So, yeah, it, it is. It, it's a mind wash. We should totally do an episode on it. I think we have enough information at this point to to spend a minute or two on it. I'm all for it. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, reminds me that some people are like slinkies, though. Yeah, was that? They're really good for much, but they bring a smile on your face when you push them down the stairs. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Jesse. Everyone, yeah, that's the best you. one. <laughs> it's really dark, though. So sorry for ending the uh, show on such a, uh, you know, like I feel like I feel a little bit like Dexter saying that one. You know, like uh, you know, here's the clean room, and we're gonna tell you something funny. Here's but, the uh, line. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or, or don't. Maybe you heard that last joke. You're like, you know what? No, that's too far. You went too far, but I really wish that you would. And if you would, uh, you know, you can find us on whatever your uh, podcast platform of choice is. You know, uh, maybe a friend like gave you like, hey, go check out these crazy guys. And, uh, you know, you didn't realize that uh, we had a podcast. But, yeah, we are there. And so uh, leave us a review if you can. As, um, uh, you know, Johnny Underwood said before, 
Uh, we greatly appreciate it. There's some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. In the ring of fire. There you go. Uh, while, while you're at codingblocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more, and send your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack channel. And uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter and send us, um, I don't know, social uh, distortion-related uh, yes. <laughs> trivia. Uh, from from mommy's little monster uh, head over to callingblocks.net and uh, find all our dillies at the top of the page he says dillies, he says dillies. So that's what they are that's what the cool kids call them now but, but you, you say dillies you say it like real quiet so. the cool kids yeah, as he talks I'm about social distortion that's been around for like over 40 years I think yeah that's about right no I know because I was at the 40th year uh, tour <laughs> <Are you> really? <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice <laughs>